Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 258 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. I just Adam today, and I have a special bonus episode for you guys on a Saturday morning. Um, or if you download it after it comes out on Saturday, whenever you listen to it. Uh, today's episode is an interview I did with author James Maloney, who resides in Australia and is the selected author for our Together We Read program. So if you are a listener in Australia or New Zealand, which I know we have a bunch of, um, you can go to togetherweread.com for more information on the program, but it's just like our big library read program that we do globally, where from starting today through September 6th, you can go to your library's website if they're an overdrive library in Australia or New Zealand, and you can download The Love That I Have by James Maloney without any wait lists or holds or anything like that uh, for the next two weeks. So we have a discussion board at togetherweread.com. I believe the author himself will be participating in some of those discussions. We also have this conversation with James where he and I go uh, pretty deep into where the idea of the book came from, uh, why he thinks that stories about World War II continue to be popular, and a whole bunch of other stuff. It was a really wonderful conversation. Uh, For people outside of New Zealand and Australia, you can still go borrow this title from your library or recommend that they add it if they have not. Um, You can also go to togetherweread.com and take a look at the chat if you're interested in the discussion board. Um, But regardless, um, even if you are outside of that area of the world, the book is still fantastic and the conversation we had is valuable to, to anybody, even if you are not currently doing the Together We Read program. So... Um, that's about it for, for me. If you guys want to get in contact with us, you can always go to professionalbooknerds.com. We have uh, our link to our reading community on Viber there where you can get a really wonderful uh, kind of sneak peek into our conversations that we have on a daily basis around the office or with all the people that have joined in and are giving us some wonderful uh, bookish thoughts. People are sending me recommendations on things to follow on Instagram and uh, books to check out in case we've missed it. It's a really wonderful place. Um, You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at ProBookNerds. And one thing I will ask, because I haven't done it lately, so I figure I will go ahead and beg. If you guys haven't done it yet, if you can go into iTunes and give us a five-star rating and write just like a one-sentence review about what you like about the show, it really, really uh, helps people find us a lot more easily. It helps you know, publishers send us bigger names so that we can give you guys uh, even bigger authors and, and more exciting things to come. So if you take just a couple of seconds and do that, we very much appreciate it. You can do it from your phone, your computer. Um, yeah, we spend a lot of time putting this stuff together, so we really appreciate when you guys, when you get your feedback. So, okay, that's it. That's me ending my rant about hoping you guys uh, subscribe and, and rate our, our podcast. Um, And I hope you guys enjoy this interview with James Maloney on the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. (music) 
Hi everyone, it's Adam again, and today I'm very excited to be joined by Australian author James Maloney, who has written several novels, including his fifth novel, which was A Bridge to Wise Man's Cove, which won the Australian Children's Book of the Year Award. The title we're going to be talking about today is called The Love That I Have, which was chosen as our Together We Read uh, reading program uh, title, which is a uh, basically similar to our Big Library Read program, if everyone listening in is familiar, where every one of our participating library partners in Australia and New Zealand have this title front and center from now through September 6th on their OverDrive website. People can go and they can borrow it without any wait lists or holds. They have the ability to go to togetherweread.com to join our discussion board and they can ask questions from each other and get some information uh, about the book that they might not have had otherwise. So first off, James, thank you for joining us today. Uh, it's my pleasure, Adam. And so for people who maybe are listening to this before they read the book, can you give us a little bit of an introduction to the love that I have? Well, at, at a certain I suppose it's a love story, um, uh, but uh, rather unusual in that it takes place a lot of it um, is set in a, in a Nazi concentration camp at the end of the Second World War. Um, naturally, those places were horrible places with great brutality. But um, uh, I've tried to cut through that despair and, um, and focus on the sense of hope uh, that um, these young people were able to maintain. And in fact, the story is much about how um, they support one another. Well, one the girl, Margot, supports um, the young man inside the wire, Dieter. Margot's not a prisoner, uh, and Dieter is. Um, so, yes, it's, it's kind of um, a concentration camp story, but it's, it's not about the Holocaust. Neither of my characters um, are Jewish, although, are, of course, there are Jewish characters, and it's set within that context. Um, but, yeah, you know, so uh, there's, there's much, um, I suppose, heartrending in many ways, and there's much um, of that brutality that... Um, associate with, with concentration camps but uh, for me it's a story of, of, um, of love and hope that cuts through the despair. I'm really glad that you said it that way. I, I feel like there's this continuing popularity about books set in World War II and you know non-fiction and fiction as well and from a, the fiction standpoint when, when you see a book about World War II do you think the fact that so many of these books that we see that are very popular set in that area, the fact that they are all about hope and promise and, you know, being able to survive that type of thing. Do you think that that's why people seek out these books that are set in this time frame that is, you know, admittedly perhaps the worst thing in our history? You know, I, certainly the worst thing in the last hundred years mm-hmm. and, and arguably the worst in our history when you uh, look at the bare facts and, and so on. And I think it's, in, yeah, I, I do think it's really important that we go back and, and um, uh, tell stories about that. We still centre many of our stories within it. Um, we, uh, the people who actually lived through that time, I suppose, are now reaching the end of their lives, those that um, have it already uh, passed on. Um, but I think it's important that um, that stay with us. So many people of my generation, I'm in my 60s, and then there's my children behind me, um, they can look to um, uh, their own parents who did go through it. While no one actually fought in the Second World War in my family, my mother was a teenager in England. She was evacuated. Um, she, at the end of the war, she was um, engaged to a man um, who was um, killed in, in um, an engagement in Germany just before the end of the war. And so, you know, 
those connections, those tentacles still come down to us now. I, I think it's really important that we remember uh, that time, how traumatic it was. Um, and novelists, the job of a novelist, of course, is to, to tell stories within historical reality without um, actually getting down to all the fine detail. Um, you know, to tell a story within it and, and make us human and make us understand um, how much people suffered, uh, how it completely changed people's lives, how it made lives very different from what they are today. That, that, um, and, um, so, yeah, that, that's, I think it's, it's a very powerful hold on us today. And so I guess I'm curious, you know, what made you want to tell this particular story? I, I know it's a, um, a bit of a stepping away from the normal uh, kind of the areas that you normally set your, your your stories in, which would be more kind of contemporary Australia where you're from. So what made you want to tell this story? Well, partly it's because um, I've written mostly for teenagers in my career mm-hmm. and, um, and Australian teenagers that. But as I mentioned earlier, I'm in my 60s now. My own children have grown up. My conne- I was a teacher, but that's a long time ago. My connection to that audience that I was so comfortable with um, has kind of been broken. And I feel this confidence writing them today. I mean, I don't even have a Facebook account. Um, <laughs> so you're living on social media. I understand it, but I don't really want to be part of it. And I think that's separated me out a little bit from it. Um, plus, there's this idea that's been in my mind for 40 years after I, I saw a film starring Anthony Quinn many years ago, um, where he was this poor um, Romanian peasant uh, taken off to Germany to work as slave labour um, in, in a uh, well in a concentration camp, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, his, his attempts to take the, uh, contact his wife, writing this precious letter, um, and then of course in the film, of course, uh, there was this. Wonderfully, wonderfully, wonderfully constructed scene where he, he carried his letter triumphantly to the to the postal slot, and as it went down, you saw it disappear into a barrel, that immediately emptied into a bonfire, so that the, all that love and hope was extinguished. Um, I just found that so cruel. I thought if you were the person assigned to burn those letters, and you knew that some of them, how important some of them would be, you know, would you be able to harden your heart? so completely that you just continue to burn those letters. And uh, that's where it started, the idea that maybe a teenage girl, 16-year-old Margot, assigned to that job um, simply couldn't quite handle it. She started filching some of the letters, reading them, and, and starting to know some of the prisoners inside the wire. I, I have to say, I, I, I saw this in the, the letter you were, you're kind of, that you wrote to readers about the fact that you, you waited 40 years to tell this story. So... First off, I think that's really inspiring for writers who are trying to get their own stories out there where it shows that, you know, sometimes a story needs to kind of brew and you don't have to feel uh, upset for not writing a particular story as quickly as possible. But I'm curious, did you, like, throughout that kind of 40 years, were you sort of jotting down notes and, like, story structure and, and things like that over time? Or or was this just sort of the story was always at the back of your mind and you felt like now was the time you wanted to tell it? No, it- very powerful um, influence on me. I was probably in my early 20s when I saw that film and it stayed there in my mind. But no, I wasn't thinking I will turn that into a story um, all those 40 years. <laughs> uh, and I wasn't dragging down notes. Uh, it was more of that moment on the question you just asked me a moment ago, you know, I'm sitting there thinking what I'm going to write next. Well, <laughs> I'm comfortable with writing uh, for young people so my characters, my protagonists are going to be in their teens perhaps. Uh, but uh, I didn't want to write about Australia anymore. I didn't want to write about contemporary kids. I thought, well, come on, James, 
have a go at, at what some people would describe, I suppose, as, as an historical novel and set somewhere else in the world. And I, I, I do enjoy doing my research. And, of course, the Internet's made that much easier than it used to be. Uh, but actually, I, I have visited Sachsenhausen concentration camp where the book is set, just north of Berlin, but not until I finished the book. <laughs> and and uh, I was... I was uh, I was pleased to find that I'd only made one or two minor errors, um, mm -hmm. more to do with geography of how far things were one from another. And, and, we're, we're, um, and the novelist, of course, can get away with where things are placed, like um, the building, which is still there today, the gatehouse, mm -hmm. the guardhouse, um, where I cited the mailroom. That was never the mailroom, but I, I think people will allow me some... Uh, <laughs> Some poetic license on that, yeah. Yeah, I think they would be okay with that. So I'm curious, you mentioned you know, going there after the fact, but what were the types of things that you needed to research to tell this story ahead of time? Like you mentioned, you know, that the internet makes it much easier to look up things, but what was some of the stuff that you needed to make sure you had a better grasp of to tell the story? Um, well, I knew there would always be um, Jewish people in the in the camp. Um, there was, I imagine, there was barely a, a concentration camp anywhere. But see, the, the extermination camps, those horrible names like Auschwitz and Koblenka and so on, they were in Poland. And I discovered in my research that um, the, the camps, many most of the camps in Germany, were actually for, for um, political prisoners and enemies of the Reich and um, homosexuals, um, even Jehovah's Witnesses. So anyone that sort of spoke against um, Hitler was, or refused to accept his, his dominance. Um, but so I had to, uh, it was very difficult to find the nuance about, well, um, you know, uh, what was special about uh, the Jewish characters in, oh, sorry, the, sorry, the Jewish uh, prisoners, mm -hmm. was there contact between those? Um, because someone who did have knowledge of um, conditions in the camp, if I was wildly wrong, um, yeah, I didn't, well, it was kind of the personal thing. I wouldn't like to insult someone's um, memories of a very harsh time by um, being so completely wrong about them. So, um, yes, the guide, it wasn't just the physical things. The guide was able to explain a few things that made sense to me that I hadn't been able to um, work out. Um, there's virtually no information um, about uh, Saxon health, um, whether any exper uh, medical experiments were done on the people or what happened which I discovered they were, mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, these sorts of things. I didn't go back and add them to my book. There was only uh, three or four things that I actually changed. The book was written but not actually published at that stage. Mm -hmm. um, very moving day for me to actually walk around the space that I'd been imagining um, for a year before, beforehand. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I can't imagine how that must have felt because on one hand, like even as someone, you know, if you're a tourist in an area, just even when you visit places that, have been around for you know hundreds of years even just going to those places it, it's you feel sort of the ghosts of what happened there and then with this type of situation having spent so much time with this story and and this specific location where so many horrible things happened i, I imagine that was a there's a lot going on in your mind when you were walking through that day oh absolutely but i actually was able to stand in exactly the spot certain photographs that I'd seen on the internet oh, wow. would have been taken from, you know, with those signs about, you know, warning you not to touch the, the barbed wire because it was electrified. Right. And um, th there's a scene, you may remember in the story, where the first time Margot actually goes inside the wire, inside mm -hmm. the camp, uh, in her attempt to meet Dita, um, she finds herself crossing the um, the upper plots, which was, you know, the area where they, they were made to um, 
stand for hours with roll call each morning and all the, the guard towers with their machine guns mm-hmm. are um, facing in at her and she just gets the impression here of what it's like to be a prisoner just for an instant she immediately cringes inside and she wants to run wants to run back to the gate and get out and um, it's only her courage that makes her to move on because she's so determined to meet this young man whose letters the love letters she's been reading um, so uh, yeah to, to stand there in the middle of that that's that ground. Um, all the barracks are gone from the space now. There's, I think there's only one left to give you an idea what it's like. Mm-hmm. Um, but, oh boy, yeah, I re- that really hit me. Um, I kind of stopped in amongst all the other people. There were probably 35, 40 people in the group, and I just stopped and mm-hmm. took it all in. And uh, I think I'd gone into a different space um, yeah. that everyone else was standing in <laughs> at that stage. I, I, have to, I have to tell you, you know, speaking of Margot and I, something that really struck me about her experience and, and what she goes through is, you know, this isn't giving too much away. It's, it happens in the beginning of the story, but, you know, she's working in the mailroom here and, and she doesn't interact with the the people who are being, you know, held captive at, at this particular place. And she's basically told to burn all these letters. And it, to me, it's this interesting, almost like a commentary on today's world especially here in america where there's so many things that are happening and so often we hear people just say like well i was just doing my job and i really feel like it's a very poignant thing to touch on that situation early on of like you know what does it mean to have a specific job that may not have anything to do with something truly terrible happening but it's absolutely somewhat connected to it like when you were writing and you chose to have these characters that weren't you know, prisoners of the, you know, you know, have a character interacting so heavily that wasn't a, a direct prisoner. Like, did that go through your mind of what you wanted to kind of say about things going on today, or was it just sort of the story you wanted to tell? I, I don't know that it was a direct theme that I was working on, Adam. Um, that, that's a really deep question for, <laughs> for humanity, this. Um, I was just doing my job. I mean, it, it was used people who were hurting um, men and women into gas chambers for mm-hmm. saying, well, I was just ordered to do it. It was right. my job. You, you can't do something like that if you're not totally on board with the site. With the, or you've been so propagandised, you've been so convinced that this is the right thing to do. Um, and that goes into question, how strong is your mind and your will um, against the, the, the relentless bombardment of, of um, false information and, and um, or distortion of, of facts and things. And it, it, well, unfortunately, it, it does have quite good political here, but it does have mm-hmm. relevance to the to the modern day. It has relevance in every era. That ultimately you get we're responsible for our own acts. And I suppose well, we haven't mentioned Corporal Meyer, who, who plays a, um, a role in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he, he well, again, trying to give too much away, perhaps yeah. he redeems himself later, but um, he knows he knows what he's doing is wrong, but he knows also knows that if he stood up to his um, superiors and refused, that he would be the next one up against the wall. So mm-hmm. I don't know that we... It's difficult for the current, you know, contemporary people to judge um, men and women who uh, lived through that time and, and throw up their excuse, well, I was just doing my job. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just think it's a it's an interesting thing to, to look at about, you know, you can have these stories. And I think this might be something else that is a reason why stories like The Love That I Have, you know, where it's set in World War II and these, you know, layered characters that you have in the story. I think that's the reason that these 
continue to be endearing books is because there are so many different aspects. Like, yes, there's a love story in here, and yes, there's heartbreak, and there's bravery, and there's all sorts of other aspects. And then there's also an aspect of it that can kind of force you, even though it's set in the past, it forces you to sort of look at our modern day and, and see are we any better than we were, you know, that many years ago. That's a good question. Uh, I've been wondering to myself a little bit lately, um, um, how long does it take humanity to forget the past? Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering whether the answer is about 70 years, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, which is about a lifetime. Uh, looking at some of the events and um, directions that people are choosing to go in. Um, and yeah, and that's the role of the novelist. Um, I mean, movies and books that, that um, things like From Here to Eternity and those sorts of books written in the in the 50s that, that really looked at um, the experience of, of the soldiers and the horror of, and the, um, the action, that, you know, um, these sorts of things. We see Frank Sinatra racing around Germany on Von Ryan's Express. And um, these were adventures and the stories that came directly out from uh, very much in, in the direct experience of the people who, um, who lived them and acted in them were still quite young people. Um, the job of the novelist is to look more broadly at um, humanity and the big questions we ask ourselves and the big decisions we make and how they affect us and, and how we survive, how, how we are better uh, nature, how human beings' better nature survives through that, through, through depravity. And at a distance of 70 years, maybe that really gives us a chance to look mm -hmm. at this horrible, horrible time in history and um, ask how we survived it. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, from a, from, a, from a craft and like writing standpoint, did this, was this story more challenging to write than the ones you've written for young adults? Or was it something that because you've sort of had it in your, your mind and, and for so long that it, it sort of came out a little bit easier. I, I guess I'm just, you know, what felt different maybe com from this compared to the other works that you've created? It, it, it wasn't it wasn't harder than writing some of my earlier books. And in fact, I mentioned earlier that I was feeling uncomfortable writing for the contemporary teenager mm -hmm. because I was um, I, I wasn't really, no longer really up with um, the, the moment to moment existence of their lives on social media and so on. So in some respects, I was. Uh, going back to a, a world that I knew a little bit more comfortably, even though uh, I'm sort of um, I'm not talking that I was wasn't around in the Second World War. Mm -hmm. um, also, you're talking about craft and technique and how I go about it. I'm very plot driven, Adam. Mm -hmm. um, even though I had that that incident when I sat down um, and used started to use it as the basis of the story, I. Um, I, I, what I do is I just brainstorm ideas at the computer for days and weeks at a time. This might happen and that might happen. And my characters at that stage, uh, even Margot and, and, uh, and Dita, um, were almost like cardboard cutouts who moved around on a stage and I said, well, you'll be over here when you see that and this kind of <laughs> stuff. Um, <laughs> all right, so I had to get the story down in my head and you know, I can't be able to summarise it to myself. Um, and so I get very excited about that. And so actually there was a lot of story to tell mm -hmm. in this in this book. And so I was quite excited. The raw material that I use as a novelist uh, to make my story work was all there. I was loving the research. Uh, mm -hmm. Then as I start to write the story, of course, the focus falls on the characters and how they're experiencing the things that I've set out for them um, to, to, um, to go through. And, you know, the, the, the hole I've dug for them to find themselves out of, if you want to put it that way. Um, and uh, so that's when I started to get to know my characters. And this has happened to me in the past. It's how I've written my um, teen novels in the past. That I know that when I'm writing my book and I'm as, as interested in my character 
um, as I am in what's happening in the story, that I know I've got the balance right and things are going to work well in this book. Um, that, that can sometimes take you know, a month or two into the writing of the story, but no, this one wasn't any harder um, mm. to write. Um, anything like that. I didn't really think I was going down a, a different path and and sort of um, giving myself any episodes of right block <laughs> and loss of self confidence. No, no. I, I, I have to tell you, I couldn't wait to get to the computer each morning mm-hmm. uh, to get on this one. I, I kind of knew I had a good story um, on my hands, and I had to do it justice. Uh, so, as a as a reader, when you're writing a novel like this, except in like World War Two. Um, do you find yourself reading similar stories to this, or do you are you the type of person who prefers to read outside of that genre and uh, kind of like separate your brain? I'm always I'm always fascinated to hear what authors are reading while they're writing their stories. Yeah, uh, back in the early two thousands, when fantasy was the massive thing after the Harry Potter, mm-hmm. uh, I had to go myself. Publishers were looking for it, so I had to go myself. I did. I wrote two quite successful um, uh, trilogies. Uh, and I deliberately avoided fantasy because I knew I would. It, it, it's a kind of in my, people get insulted when I say this, but it's a it's a certain genre where it's a genre where certain things are expected. You're going to go down certain paths. Uh-huh. I didn't want to find myself following um, too many of the great writers um, in their uh, in the way they'd done things. So yeah, I deliberately avoided um, a, a fantasy. On this occasion, no, no, I felt the more that I read. Um, about the the war, both um, information, nonfiction, mm-hmm. uh, and fiction, the better it was going to work for me. I um, I read a, a really moving and interesting book and novel, and I really I don't know, I can't remember the name of it, uh, or even the author. I'm very sorry. Okay. Um, about the, ex- the experience of the German people in East Prussia, who, when as the Russians swept through, um, you know, when the Germans started to lose the war and the Russians swept through towards Germany, these people had to get out of the way. You know, well, they basically had to flee because the Russians were being mercy, you know, were treating the population any Germans they came across quite mercilessly. Mm-hmm. And so this person must have researched it all very carefully and the hardships of that these um, refugees experienced in just trying to stay ahead of the advancing Russian forces and, and the compromises they made and you know, who, you know, who won and who lost, uh, who lived and who died. Uh, it was a very um, compelling story, and it taught me a lot. It, um, it helped me find my way uh, through in that those final chapters. Um, uh, well, t- the sections that are set at the end of the war, once the Russians have come through, uh, that helped me out. Yeah, I'm gonna when we're when we're done recording, I'm gonna look this up. This sounds incredibly interesting. I'm gonna try and find this novel for us when yeah. when we're done chatting. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. He's written quite a few. He's Chris somebody. Anyway, look, like we'll, we'll find it, Adam. We will. <laughs> I, yeah, I would say I will. I will make sure for our listeners. I will make sure that I, I track this down. Um, I, yeah. I as this is a you know we're a library company. I am. I want to ask. I have to make sure I don't let this slide by. At one point in your life, you were a librarian, correct? That's right. That's right. I, I trained as a as a teacher, and um, after a few years. <laughs> I wasn't the greatest teacher in the world, at it. Um, <laughs> but uh, I got the I got the opportunity to move into the the role of the teacher librarian. Um, in a, I don't know if they have equivalents in America or elsewhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where you know you're a trained teacher. Um, you do teach lessons. You do, but it's all focused on both literature and information skills. Mm-hmm. And you run the library and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I really loved that job. 
and because it was in you know in a school <clears throat> part of the training and then subsequently um was uh reading lots of literature for uh, students at the age that you were dealing with mm-hmm. and that i'd already been thinking even from my university days uh, like a lot of people at university i'd um I wrote dreadful derivative poetry and I started a few novels that never went fast, past the first chapter or two. Um, and then once I got into Tisla Rancho, I thought, now, I do want to see my name on the front of a book and I do, I do like kids, even though I wasn't the best teacher. And um, I felt, in particular, I felt a lot of boys were disengaged from, from reading novels and they, when I press them about it, they say, oh, it's a bit slow, you know, you said this book was good and I read 30 pages and nothing happened. So that sort of prompted me to think, well, I'll sit down and I'll make something sure something happens on the first page and we'll go from there. And, and like everyone else, I, I um, had my first attempts that didn't get published, but eventually I had that connection to the kids I was working with every day and I started to get published. Um, but as far as the librarian is concerned, yeah, I loved that job, I loved the variety, I was in um, school libraries at a time when the whole computerization thing came through mm-hmm. and we were working out how to make best use of it and um, so it was a, I loved the fact that every day I went to work um, was going to be different from the day before and um, but yeah you know, like a lot of people I walk into a library and I just think oh, it's full of books <laughs> I love this and that that was my workspace every day mm-hmm. um, so yeah anyone who who's into books and loves that kind of thing, um, you can understand what a, a joy it is. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, you, were, you were talking about, you know, trying to find books for sort of reluctant young readers. I have, I have nieces and nephews, and that really is, like, that is my favorite thing in the world, is to give one of them a book and have them tell me, you know, a week yeah. later that they loved it. There's nothing better than that. Yeah, um, yeah. I just, look, even, even if they don't, even if they screw up their nose a little bit when they open the the um the, pa- the paper on on their birthday or whatever i mean the research is plain that if you've got books on a bookshelf in your home you'll be a reader in the end uh, and if there are no books in the home there's little hope that you'll be a reader i completely agree okay so towards the end of our podcast we like to do what we call the nerd nine it's just nine light-hearted questions that we like to ask every author and we also love alliteration hence the name um, so the, the first one is, uh, do you remember the last book you finished reading? Oh, last book I finished reading, um, was, um, uh, Eleanor Oliphant is perfectly fine. Yes. Um, uh, well, completely fine. Something along that. Yeah. Mm. That was only a, couple, a week ago. Yeah. 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 Uh, do you have a favorite place to read? Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, I read in a, um, a quite lovely chair in my bedroom mm-hmm. uh, where I'm comfortable to sit there because I get back problems if I lie down and read. Uh-huh. And the other problem I have is that if I read um, three pages and I'm asleep <laughs> at whatever time of the day, I, uh, I definitely last longer than three pages. Yeah, I honestly, I'm the. we have so many authors who tell us that they love reading in bed and I'm, I'm like you. If I lay in bed and I start reading, that book falls on my face and I fall asleep. I can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> do you uh, do you remember the book that made you sort of fall in love with reading when you were a kid? Uh, I wasn't much of a reader as a kid, mm-hmm. and I went um, on a holiday when I was about sixteen with the family, and I was away from friends, and I was a bit bored, um, and I picked up a book by Robert Ruark, the American novelist, mm-hmm. called Something of Value, which is set in set in Kenya. 
Uh, they eventually made a move out, out of it with uh, Rock Hudson, I think. Mm-hmm. And, um, wow, yeah, it's like two inches thick. I'd never read a book like this before. And, wow, I, I thought, wow, if this this is good. Um, uh, and I should, I, I also need to sort of um, give, uh, well, I got highly commended to the books like Year 11 and Year 12 English Teachers Set Us to Study, mm-hmm. um, the famous Lord of the Flies. Yes. I was in an all-boys school and we took that book apart like <laughs> boys would take an car <laughs> engine apart to look how it worked. And I thought, wow, if, if novels are... Oh, I've discovered that novels are full of ideas. Mm. And I thought, wow, who would have thought? And <laughs> that was the age when I suppose I was old enough to start thinking about um, one thing more than just to be a body that ran around a sporting field. So um, the idea that I, there were... No ideas in novels, um, and, and that if you know, later on I thought, well, writing one means you can express your ideas. So <laughs> yeah, that was so that was that was a big moment. Uh, where is one place you'd like to travel that you have not yet been to? Uh, the Antarctic. Nice. Yeah, uh, no, it's it's difficult. Even like living in Australia, believe it or not, it's quite difficult and very expensive to get to. But I've just, oh, I think the silence. And um, the expanse, uh-huh. you know, and I, oh, I'd love it. I love it. Um, do you have a favorite holiday to celebrate? I'm um, sorry, a favorite holiday? Yeah. Yeah, do you mean a single day like? Um, uh, yeah, so, mean, yeah. Uh, sorry, that's very American of me. Yeah, like the the way that we say holiday, like um, Christmas or Thanksgiving, like we would have over here right. or something like that. Uh, oh, today. I don't, you know, Adam. Um, mm-hmm. I love, I do love, uh, no, no, it's not true. I, uh, Christmas, but mm-hmm. um, Christmas Day, we're we, one of those families where, because you've got two sides, husband and wife, mm-hmm. Christmas Day is one side of the family. Usually the week before we go to my side of the family, to my brother's house, we all get round the pool because it's Australia and at um, uh-huh. the time of the year it's very hot. Uh, and I really love that date. It's, so we all arrive in turn time for brunch, mm-hmm. and uh, there've been days I haven't got home till eight o'clock that night, and nice. um, and I didn't drive. <laughs> <laughs> if you get my meaning, I do. And uh, I've just had a wonderful day. That's my favourite holiday, even though it's not possibly the official holiday. Sure. Um, are you a coffee person or a tea person? Ah, uh, coffee first. Uh, sorry, tea first thing in the morning. And at half past ten on the dot, I have to have my coffee. <laughs> uh, are you a cat person or a dog person? Ah, uh, dogs. Dogs, yeah. I, I don't get enough emotional response from a cat. <laughs> uh, I, I like the fact that a dog wags its tail. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have a favorite food? A favorite food? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> my wife makes a really quite wonderful um, steak au foie, you know, the, what the French would call steak yeah. frite. Um, and um, oh yes, when she tells me that we're having a special dinner date night or something, and that's what we're having, um, that's my favourite. Uh, and then the last one of these: if you could uh, have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would you pick? Oh, that's a, that's a hard one. Mm-hmm. That's a hard one. <laughs> I get that a lot. You know, today, I know. I, look, I think I would really love to meet Shakespeare, mm-hmm. have dinner with Shakespeare, and just uh, I just have so many wonderful stories. So many deep themes about humanity mm-hmm. um, have come out of that band, and I do believe it was just a single man. I'm going to go down these conspiracy theories. I would just <laughs> love to have seen, and yet, and yet he was a, he was a businessman. He did it to make money, mm-hmm. um, and so I would really love to see what kind of person he was. And um, 
uh, and, and seriously hope that I wasn't disappointed <laughs> in the man, man that I discovered. Yeah, I, I, someone told me years, that, um, years ago that after, if you're looking for um, wisdom and truth after the Bible, then you go mm. to Shakespeare's works, you know, his canon, and um, that's where it'll be. So uh, I, I think that's pretty close. Mm-hmm. It's funny that you say, you know, that you you believe he's, you know, you don't believe in the conspiracy theories that he has multiple people because we've had a few other authors tell us that and I always joke with them after that it would be a dinner party because you'd be with like 10 people. But I also believe, <laughs> I also believe it's one person. I just like to give people a hard time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I, mm. yeah. Um, so my last question for you before I let you go is for all the readers who are going to join in the Together We Read program or who may discover your novel after that or who have already discovered it, what do you hope people take away from the love that I have? Um, I suppose that even amidst the worst depravity that human beings have ever um, unleashed on, on other human beings in the world, um, you know, those Nazi concentration camps, that there was hope. Um, there were people who struggled through and there were people who, who wanted to, to help others um, at the risk of their own lives. Um, Corporal Mayer's description of Margot Bauman as um, a single flower in a burnt-out field, I think, is the one thing that I would hope they would take away uh, from that book, yeah. That is a perfect and beautiful place to end. James, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, Adam. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.